I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The LRB podcast is sponsored by Art and Ideas, a podcast series featuring J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in conversation with artists, writers, curators and scholars. In the latest episode, Ankar Mulstein, author of The Pen and the Brush, How Passion for Art Shaped 19th Century French Novels, discusses the symbiotic relationship between authors and artists in 19th century France. Search Getty Art and Ideas on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or other podcast sources. Welcome to the LRB podcast. I'm Jeremy Harding and I'll be talking to Elaine Mokteffi. Elaine's memoir about Eldridge Cleaver and the Black Panthers in Algeria, who pitched up at the end of the 60s, was published recently in the LRB. It tells the story of an extraordinary encounter between the leader of a radical movement forged in the heart of empire and a new regime in Algeria that came to power after a long and bitter war with France. In 1962, independent Algeria became a patron of third world struggles, an African Cuba, and it took its mission seriously. It invited national liberation movements to open bureaus in Algiers, the Viet Cong, the Southern African anti-colonial and anti-apartheid organisations, the Palestinians. The list was long and illustrious. It even offered military training. But when the Black Panthers showed up, nothing was straightforward. Elaine Mokteffi was living and working in Algiers at the time. She helped Cleaver find his feet, and she welcomed the Panthers. Most of what followed, she saw at first hand. Her sympathies lay with the liberation movements, and the exiled radicals from the United States. But she was, in those days, a cautious supporter, with reservations, of the new Algerian regime. And hardly surprising, she was a long-standing critic of French colonialism. Colonialism, uh, whether it be French or anybody else's colonialism, is an abomination. And um, it's a war that lasted for almost eight years, which is a, a mark black mark on French history that's not easy to erase. When you took up the post uh, in New York, what were your politics at the time? Apparently you were on the left, but that's not exactly clear to us now what being on the left meant at the time. What does it mean to be on the left in 1960? I had worked uh, mainly with organizations that were interested in human rights and um, world peace Back in the United States, I, my first real political activity, I guess, was working for uh, world peace through world government with an organization that was quite uh, representative at the time of thinking on the campuses and uh, in uh, liberal circles. Everything felt new and a lot of things felt possible after the end of World War II. 
Well, yes, we did. Uh, it was an enthousi- we were enthusiastic, uh, but very quickly our hopes were dashed with McCarthyism and uh, the backlash of, against political organizations that had human rights as their goals and world peace. Uh. I mean, as you looked around at the end of the 50s and the early 60s, there were kind of, I wouldn't call them beacons, but there were prospects for for people who believed in in a global renewal. I mean, there was Senator J.F. Kennedy, for example, who did uh, express an interest in Algerian independence. Yes, Kennedy made a speech on the Senate floor, and I guess it was 56, uh, condemning Eisenhower's um, politics with respect to France and Algeria. He accused uh, Eisenhower of carrying out a, a policy of, of head in the sand by providing uh, armament that was supposed to be for the NATO countries that he knew very well France was using in Algeria. And uh, that speech had a tremendous impact. In fact, Kennedy said at the time that he'd never received so much mail uh, as uh, he did uh, following that speech. In 1960, when he was running for president, the Algerian office where I was working tried to get him to uh, reiterate that uh, statement, and uh, he did, he refused at the time. He was campaigning, and he didn't want to get involved in that sort of politics. His brother did say that uh, JFK was still behind his earlier statement, but uh, he never made it public. Algeria had become a delicate subject by then. When you uh, set off to New York to work for the reps of the government in exile, the Algerian government in exile, you'd already encountered some of them elsewhere when you were in West Africa running a a, a youth congress. And one of them was uh, uh, Franz Fanon. And I just wondered, I mean, he he and his colleague were there and um, you had quite a lot to do with them. Everybody now has a, a very vivid, strong impression of Fanon through his writings on politics and on, and on his work as a psychiatrist in a, in a colonial nightmare. But um, what were your own impressions of him as a person? Oh, he was, um, it seemed to me to be a man who uh, was ex- uh, driven. I had, he was driven, his ideas uh, were his life. And his ideas were both in the field of psychiatry and the field of African and world politics. And uh, he he was a revolutionary in in both his personal life and his uh, public life. Did you have much to do with him after you'd met him at the Congress in uh, in, in Ghana? Yes. Um, I did meet him again in in the United States when he had leukemia and came there to be examined at the uh, Bethesda Hospital of uh, the U.S. government outside of Washington. He uh, had been to the Soviet Union at the time uh, earlier and um, had been uh, treated, and he thought that he was um, on the road to recovery. But uh, very quickly, the leukemia 
caught him up again, and at that point, even the Soviet doctors thought that he should try uh, American medicine and see if there was anything that could be done. The Algerian provisional government sent him to Washington, and I happened to be the only person who'd ever met him before from our office in New York, so I often went down to see him and see if he needed help, needed anything, was being treated properly, whatever. And uh, so I got to know him quite well. People tend to forget what a what a beacon Algeria had become for third world countries and, and non-aligned members. I mean, it was a kind of African Cuba when you went there. After independence in 62, you were invited to work for Ahmed Ben Bella, the new president in his press and information service, and, and you took up the offer. Can you say a little about what Algeria was like when you pitched up? I mean, you, you, you write in your memoir, that uh, uh, the memoir for the LRB, that it was a capital for the liberation movements in Africa and Asia, the third world, as we used to call it. But tell us something, you know, about that, that bustling radical scene as you encountered it. Well, first of all, there were lots of offices being occupied by representatives of liberation movements, in addition to which the Algerian government was training uh, soldiers of these liberation movements, uh, giving them uh, military training and uh, opening the press to them, giving, helping them uh, with um, public relations and, and interviews, newspaper, oh, the radio and the newspapers were open to them. I don't know how many, there have been, I don't know how many liberation movements had representation in Algiers at the time. It was really wide open to, uh, uh, not only African movements, but even uh, opposition movements from Portugal and Spain. I once met uh, a member of the uh, French-Canadian liberation movement, and uh, there are people who say there were as many as 70 organizations represented. I think it's an exaggeration, but there were a great many. Including the Vietnamese. Yes, of course, there were the Vietnamese, uh, the Viet Cong, who had a big office in uh, Algiers, was very well represented by a very competent man, Tran Hoi Nam. Uh, he's an old-time militant who uh, was one of the few representatives of liberation movements who got very close to Algerian leaders personally. He was an amazing man. And uh, there were, of course, all of the Palestinian organizations represented. There were, there were um, opposition, uh, opposition movements from Morocco and Tunisia, Algeria's neighbors. I mean, the country was really open to third world politics at the time. Yeah. How close did uh, Ben Bella allow the, the staffers in his office to get to him? I mean, do you feel you got to know him at all? No, I don't feel I got to know him at all, really, because uh, we were completely separate in a completely separate unit in the what's called the Palais du Gouvernement, the government palace, whereas he was set up in another part of town in a in a villa called the Villa Jolie. And no, I didn't get to know him. I worked under the direction of one of his uh, close counselors. So you didn't really have much of a sense of him, but. What did you make of him as a figure? Were you were you, were you an admirer? Yes, I did in the beginning. Admired him considerably, and as time went on, um, 
we <laughs> I became much more disillusioned. I attended a few uh, public meetings where uh, he was um, very outspoken against individuals um, where he made uh, promises that couldn't possibly have been kept. Uh, he was a good speaker and um, uh, very convinced of his uh, capacity to lead the country. I don't know how well he took advice and listened to his, uh, the people around him. But uh, one of the main things that was very troubling was that torture uh, began again in Algeria, but this time Algerians on Algerians, and it was allowed by the Bembele regime. So who was being detained and tortured, and, and for what reasons? Opposition, opposition characters, uh, opposition politicians, heads of opposition organizations being taken in and secretly tortured. Yes. And was this common knowledge? You say secret, secretly, but did the word get around? Oh, the word did get around. We even knew the name of the villain, which uh, this was happening, yes. Ben Bella was overthrown in a, in a coup in 65, and, and he was replaced by, by Hwari Boumediene and a kind of entourage of Boumediene's comrades from the Army of National Liberation. Had you seen the coup coming? Actually, no. Um, it was rumored for a week or two before the coup came about that there that there was a strong uh, misalliance and that uh, there was uh, trouble brewing between um, Boumediene, Bouteflika, and um, Ben Bella. And uh, it's, that rumor got around to such an extent that it got into the press in the last few weeks. But and maybe even the day before the coup, Ben Bella made a speech in which he said that he and Boumediene got along beautifully, like the two fi- the fingers two fingers of the hand. And the next day, it was over. I guess because you you've already voiced your reservations about Ben Bella before he was overthrown, that you weren't too uneasy about continuing to work as a member of the Algerian press service now that Boumediene and the new regime had ousted your former employer and put him in jail. Yes, well, I had adopted Algeria in a sense as my future. And um, good or bad, rain or shine, I was sticking with it and uh, continuing to work because there were so many positive things happening at the time. Uh, International meetings of third world groups. Uh, There was a a struggle against uh, imperialism on a world level and Algeria was a strong part of it. So that it wasn't um it, it wasn't it was meaningful to be there and uh, have felt that i was part of uh, a movement and, and i it, it didn't occur to me to leave <laughs> i was casting around on the internet before we started talking uh, for the date that um that giro pontecorvo began shooting the battle of algiers and the best i could come up with was the summer of 65 and apparently the, the shoot took several months but that would mean that he was filming in Algiers when the coup took place in June. Is that the case? No, I think they had just packed up and gone. Uh, because I, uh, I do remember the morning of the coup, 
I drove to my uh, office at, um, at Algerie Press Service through the main streets of the city, and I saw the tanks parked here and there, and I remember thinking that this was all very strange, and a lot of us thought that perhaps this was a decor for uh, Pontecorvo's movie, The Battle of Algiers. But we very quickly realized during that very same day that, of course, it was not a decor. It was the real thing. There had been a coup d'etat. Uh, do you reckon the film was an accurate representation of what Algerians recalled about the struggle in Algiers, in particular, and the crimes of the French, or was it just a doctrinaire puff intended for sympathisers on the European left? Oh, I think that uh, we got we got a taste of it, a good taste of it. Uh, the struggles in the Casbah, the the. Um, the determination of the French to put down the revolution, uh, the, the, the means they used, murder, execution of prisoners, and torture, and so on. I think we get a good feeling of it through that film. Yes, and of the, and of the, the courage and the, the, uh, the need to fight on the part of Algerians. I think it's, I think it's got a good flavor to it, yes. Somehow the left in the West only got a part of what was happening in Algeria during the war and afterwards. M maybe they failed to see how conservative some elements in the anti-colonial movement really were. I'm thinking of the Islamic strand, the Muslim clergy and their congregations. I mean, that was kind of downplayed. Well, that's the view of, of, of Mohammed Harbi, the historian, who I know you know. I wonder if there's any truth in it. Oh, yes, I think it was definitely downplayed. I think Harbi was right that um, it was downplayed. That, but we, we felt it. We felt it coming. I think that um, we sensed that um, the reliance on uh, teachers and preachers coming from uh, Egypt and other Islamic countries was not going to have a, a positive effect on the education of children and uh, on the adherence to uh, a, a more liberal view of religion. On the contrary, yes, it was obvious. Uh, this was happening actually after independence. That there were there were actually in, invitations to to imams to come and and work in Algiers in Algeria. Yes, this was after independence, and uh, you could gradually see the ministry of Habus, which is a religious ministry, uh, now beginning to organize different conferences and so on, and you could feel that uh, the strength of uh, their moves, but also you could feel the acceptance on the part of more liberal uh, elements. Uh, didn't, they did not react. They didn't react because they were apprehensive in some way, they didn't want to cause a stir. Uh, what was the reason? Intimidation, I think. They were intimidated. And uh, gradually the religious elements took on more and more importance and uh, were more and more audacious. Four years after the coup, the Black Panthers arrived in Algiers, or rather Eldridge and Kathleen Cleaver, and they'd come from Cuba. And your story of their time in Algeria is absolutely gripping. How did you first encounter them? Can you remind us of that? Well, uh, uh, one night as I came home very late, around midnight, uh, I could hear the phone ringing in um, my apartment. I ran 
to open the door, and it was Charles Chikarema, who was the representative of the uh, Zimbabwean African People's Union in Algiers, who was a good friend of mine. And Charles was on the phone saying, Eldridge Cleaver is in uh, Algiers and he needs help. Go see him. So he gave me the name of a hotel. And on the next morning, I went to that hotel. And it was a, a third-rate hotel in um, the sort of the, the, the no-man's land between the Kasbah and the European city. And um, I met Eldridge and Kathleen Cleaver. Kathleen was eight months pregnant and flat out on a bed, and Eldridge was towering and hit the ceiling with his head. And um, he told me his story, and he, he did need some help, yes. Just run us through that story. Uh, he had been in, uh, living clandestinely in Havana, and had been discovered by a journalist, and the news hit the press, and I think the Cubans were not happy. They had enough problems, and they didn't want one another one. When you say clandestinely, you mean with the approval of the Cubans, but unknown to the rest of the world. That's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it was unknown to the rest of the world. He was to keep a low profile, and uh, very difficult for Eldridge. And um, so at some point they told him that they had made contact with the Algerian government and that the Algerians would be very happy to receive him and allow him to have uh, make, uh, undertake his political activity and um, that he would be able to remain in Algeria. However, when he arrived, uh, uh, there was the only, body, the only person who was at the airport to meet him was a representative of the Cuban embassy who told him that the Algerians had changed their minds. And uh, when Elder told me this story, I couldn't believe it. I never heard of the Algerians receiving, uh, refusing to receive someone who needed help, was in exile. Uh, uh, refugees were always welcomed at the time. And uh, I told him so, and also told him that I knew the man who was head of liberation movements and that I could contact him if he wanted me to. And uh, he thought that would be a pretty good idea, so I did. And um, the, that was uh, Commandant uh, Sleeman Hoffman, who was head of the sector of the FLN in charge of uh, liberation movements. I called him a few hours later. And he said, why, right on. Yes, of course, he can do an international press conference. He can remain here. No problem. I'm going to um, get us to leapfrog over the story of Cleaver's time in Algiers. It's all brilliantly told in your piece for the LRB. Um, in fact, I call it required reading. But I do have two questions about that period. First of all, why do you think the Algerians could never bring themselves to give the Panthers formal recognition in Algiers as a full-fledged liberation movement. They had many of the trappings and also many of the privileges of the other movements, but they never got, quite got the full recognition out of the FLN, did they? Yes, they did finally get it. Um, in the They didn't in the beginning. It took about a year or so. Uh, in the beginning, um, they didn't. I don't know what the reasons might have been, I can imagine that, the, that there was perhaps some hesitation in confronting uh, the American uh, hierarchy or the, the American government. Uh, however, they did do it. Uh, after about a year, 
we got in touch with um, some personalities in the Algerian setup who um, saw to it that they got not only recognition, but they got a villa, which was something quite rare among the liberation movements at the time. They got uh, recognition with a certain number of privileges. They had got Algerian ID. They could come in and out of the country without visas, and so could the people that they approved of. You know, they've got quite a number of privileges. There were advantages that not every liberation movement had. So they were as recognized in the end as the PLO and uh, the uh, ZAPU, the Zimbabwean movement, and the African National Congress and all the rest. Yes, I I think they got probably as much, almost as much recognition as uh, some of the Palestinian organizations. Um, Except, of course, they did not get military training. That was not part of the deal. But they did get political um, uh, enhancement, yes. My, my, My second question is, you know, what led Cleaver to leave Algiers? Well, things were drying up, uh, not only with the Algerian authorities, but in the United States with the organization. The Black Panther Party had split, and uh, it was a very destructive um, time for the Black Panther Party as such, and it was uh, it was fading, definitely fading, so that we had a broken organization in the United States. Uh, he had um, some had conflict with the Algerians. They wouldn't have sent they wouldn't have sent him away, but he realized that things were coming to an end. A period of of history was coming to an end and it was time to move on. Do you think that the split between Huey Newton and Cleaver was something that the Algerians read very carefully and felt that there was writing on the wall about the Panthers. How did they, how did they actually absorb that information about the, the Panthers being split and perhaps beginning to fall apart? I actually wonder whether they paid much attention to it. Um, I actually wonder whether they followed those things closely and attempted to interpret them. They were very far from uh, understanding American organizations and American organizations of African Americans, even less than anything else. I, I don't think they followed it closely. And their policy in general with liberation movements was, let them do their thing, uh, we don't intervene. Elaine, you fell in with a veteran of the Liberation Army, the Algerian Liberation Army, and you eventually married. Would you would you say a little about your relationship with uh, Mokhtar Moktefi? Because that's something that we don't get in in the piece. Uh, yes, well, um, Mokhtar was uh, had been in the uh, Algerian Liberation Army. He was from a small town in central Algiers, and. Um, he was a militant at an early age and uh, joined the Liberation Army as soon as he could get into it. Uh, he had was trained uh, as um, as a sig- in the Signal Corps of the Algerian uh, Liberation Army and uh, spent, uh, I guess it was uh, of the eight-year war, he must have spent five years in the army, uh, leaving it only on the Day of Liberation. After independence, 
he went to work in uh, the uh, Algerian government setup in different positions. He also continued his studies. He, he had uh, got uh, degrees in, uh, in uh, sociology, economics, uh, law, and so on, and um, continued uh, his fight for justice and equality and... Um, what more can I say? He was a wonderful man. <laughs> Did both of you feel that the, the revolution wasn't going quite the way you would have wished it had gone? Yes, he felt that uh, that it was going in a very bad direction. Um, he felt that they, was, they were being ruled by people whose uh, goals uh, were power and not justice. Justice seems a bit of a big note to go out on, but not a bad one for all that. Elaine Moktefi, thank you. The LRB podcast is sponsored by Art and Ideas, a podcast series featuring J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in conversation with artists, writers, curators and scholars. In the latest episode, Ankar Mulstein, author of The Pen and the Brush, How Passion for Art Shaped 19th Century French Novels, discusses the symbiotic relationship between authors and artists in 19th century France. Search Getty Art and Ideas on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or other podcast sources.